most uh, fantastic and liberating declarations known to humankind, to be loved in the ultimate sense by Almighty God, irreversibly, undeservedly, unconditionally, does something to you when it takes hold in your life, makes you feel safe and secure. Doesn't make you immune from the hurts of life and other relationships, but it helps you to be sustained even through the demise of some of those. When you realize you're loved by the one who matters most, I don't know, you're just tickled, you're just relaxed, you're just at ease. Sing with me, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's enough. (laughs) For the Bible tells me so. I could not know of the love of God uh, apart from inscripturated truth. It's a declaration he made throughout the scripture, and we're going to see it again in a grand and glorious passage before us now in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. We'll look at a few verses, the theme being uh, based on the little song we just sang. Jesus loves me. I'm not speculating and guessing about it. I don't have doubts about it. Jesus loves me, I know this, because the Bible tells me so. Let's see what the Bible has to say. Beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul is speaking. Look what he says. What shall we say then to these things? So that question begs a question, doesn't it? What things is Paul referring to? Uh, Folks, he's referring to all those things he has previously stated hitherto up until this A point in Romans chapter 8. You know what he spoke to us about? The human condition. He said religious people and non-religious people have something in common. It's a problem they cannot solve. They owe God a debt they cannot pay. It's called sin. Religious people cover it up with liturgy and ceremony and rules and regulations, but underneath is the same profound Uh, incessant problem, and that is we do the things we shouldn't do. We don't do the things we ought to do. There's a sinful inclination in us. We're in trouble. We can't overcome it. Nobody is with excuse. Those who have the law break it. Those without the law have an awareness of God in creation and on their heart, which they have dismissed. They haven't paid attention to it. They know they're on the outs with God. They know they're wrong. Their conscience bears testimony to them that they have a sin problem they cannot solve. Not all the good deeds, not all the morals and ethics uh, motivated by human endeavors, not all the religion in the world can overcome the sin problem. Paul is building this case. He did this in the first few chapters of Romans. They weren't fun. And then he starts talking about this Jesus who solved the problem for Jew and Gentile alike, for those who had the law of Moses and for those who didn't have the law of Moses. He did something only he could do, he being the God-man, he being related to the Father as the Son of God, he being related to us as the Son of Man. He joined our hands together. He took the hands of the religious sinner and the non-religious sinner. He took the hands of the Jew and the Gentile, and he put them in the hands of Almighty God and was the mediator, built a bridge and solved the sin problem once and for all. He spoke about all those things. And he said, I, he said, I gotta tell you something. Once you've established by faith that connection with Almighty God, even though you may suffer, uh, that bond will never be severed. And even in the suffering, God is using it. He said this, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, to conform us to the image of his son. And so he was saying everything, though it not 
is not good inherently can be used by God for good to those who are his kids, called according to his purpose, to those who love him. He said all those things. And then after saying all that, he said, what then shall we say? You know what he's saying? How do you respond? He said, I'm exploding. Aren't you exploding? Think about these truths. You were a debtor. You owed a debt you could not pay. God took care of it. He did it freely. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it nor merit it. He did it by grace. That's what grace is. He simply had mercy on you, without which we would be in trouble. And Paul says, how do you comment? How do you respond? What shall we say to these things? What things? Maybe he sums it up in the next phrase. If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? Could I tell you something? The, the, the language, the original Greek allows me to read it this way. Not if God is for us, but since God is for us, who is, who is against us? The reader in the first century, maybe some of you here tonight are saying, are you kidding me? A ton of people are against me. And you get out your list of those who, who can't stand you. You know, and you say, well, this one and that one and these people don't like me and that one doesn't want to be my friend. What kind of a statement is this? Who is against us? Plenty of people, all kinds of people, you say. Not only that, Satan is against us. For crying out loud, he hates our guts. Did you know that? He just really, really, he hates those who give worship. We just sang three songs to the praise of Almighty God. Satan hates that because he wants to be like the most high God. He wants to receive the worship we reserve for Almighty God. So he hates us. So what kind of question is this? Who is against us? Lots of people and even powers and principalities in the air. Satan and his evil hosts, demons, they're all against us. Lots of people are against us. Everyone here has been hurt at one time or another by someone who should have been for you but ended up being uh, against you. In fact, many here tonight have wounds, gaping open wounds as a result of all those rejection messages in failed relationships. And Paul asked this question, who can be against us? But then, then the answer is implied. If God is for us, who can successfully prevail against us? That's the point. If God is for us, to the extent that on his own initiative, he offered his only begotten son for our sin, so as to secure and solidify our salvation. If God did all that, who could possibly interfere with the Father's grand and glorious redemptive purposes for us? People could interfere with a lot of things, but they could never interfere with God's salvation plan for those who are already saved. They could never dissuade him by consummating the relationship he began with us. Since God is for us, who in the world could possibly be against us? Hey, would you do me a favor? I'm going to read a phrase. I'd like you simply to insert your first name in it. Let's get this really close to home. So, so here we go. Since God is for, now say your name. Since God is for, who can possibly prevail against? See, that's what that verse says. If you're a Christian, you have rightly put your name in that little formula. <clears throat> what a declaration. Since God is for you, who can possibly bring an accusation, prevail, drive a wedge, separate you from the God who took the initiative in saving you? That's what Paul said. But I got to tell you something. That's hard to swallow. <clears throat> There's nothing to hang that on. Because we've all had relationships that haven't worked out well. 
that have led to hurt, not help. And so it's a little hard for us to imagine that Almighty God, who has infinitely high standards, would never divorce himself from us. And so Paul has to say more in arguing the case so as to persuade us. This is what he does. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know what Paul's doing here? He's making a logical argument. He just wants us to be logical. He, he essentially is saying, don't you find it to be illogical to think that God would have given his most treasured possession, his only begotten son, so as to secure the salvation of sinners such as you and I, and then turn around and refuse to give us with him all else that is necessary to bring that salvation to its final eternal consummation and end. Paul is saying it is illogical to think that God would have given us his best and not the rest in order to bring to fulfillment the salvation which he has promised us. You know what this is? This is called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gave the greater his own son, how will he not give us the lesser? Everything else we need in order to make it the rest of the way through this life and on into his loving, welcoming arms until we meet him at the marriage supper of the Lamb and celebrate our redemption throughout eternity. How is it possible, says Paul, that he would have given us the greatest and not the rest as well? And can you see that uh, word? It's easy to miss. He who did not spare his, it doesn't say son, does it? He who did not spare his own son. It's to highlight that this son who the father didn't spare is a one of a kind. There really is only one unique begotten son of God who shares the essential nature of divinity, the father. That's Jesus Christ. The rest of us are adopted sons and daughters. Paul is making the point. If God refused even to withhold his irreplaceable, unique, one of a kind, only son, his own son for us to save us, how will he not, in spite of all else that's going on even in our world today, unsettling though it may be, how will he not complete the work which he began in us and bring us into our eternal place, our abode, bliss, dwelling with him, serving him, worshiping him, no matter what else is going on in the world today, how will he not do this forevermore? And verse 33, to amplify the point, says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, you might say, plenty of people. One of the most frequent uh, offenses and wounds uh, Christians have had to bear throughout the eons of time are scandalous accusations. There was a time early on in the first century when our... Um, Brothers and sisters in Christ were accused, for instance, of cannibalism as they participated in the Lord's Supper. Because there they had the symbols of the Lord's body and blood. And so folks made the scandalous accusation that these members of the way, that's how they were referred to because Jesus is the way, these members of the way, they're cannibals. Do not let them get their hands on you. They'll eat you. 
And down to this very day, Christians are being accused. We're being accused of uh, being narrow and intolerant by the most intolerant, (laughs) narrow-minded bunch of accusers the world has ever known. That's That's just the way it is. Who will bring a charge against us? Many, do you know one of the names for Satan? Devil means slanderer. He's an expert on slandering the sons and the daughters of God. So there are plenty of people who seek to bring a charge against God's elect, against Christians. The point is, no one can bring a, a successful charge against God's elect that stands Why? It says right there, because God is the one who justifies. The most high God is the highest tribunal. If he is for us, if he has granted us right standing with him, that's what justification is. It's a legal pronouncement. It's to declare us acquitted, free of the penalty of sin. If God the Father has given us that acquittal, that pardon, that declaration, if he's cast all our sins behind his back, if he considered us no longer to be adversaries but sons and daughters, who in the world would have the nerve to think they could successfully bring a charge, an accusation, a scandalous statement against God's elect? God will allow nothing to condemn us. But what about when we sin, actually sin, and are really guilty of wrongdoing. Here is where Satan really moves in for the kill. He brings accusations about us, and they're right. They're correct. He says to the father, your son, your daughter, has sinned, violated one of your clearly stated commandments. Do you know what the father says? Case dismissed. Because Jesus, the son, says, Father, that is true. Uh, Your son or your daughter indeed did sin. But that's the very thing I died for. And the father says, case dismissed. Who can possibly bring a charge against God's elect? A charge that will stand in the courtroom of almighty God. God is the one who justifies. And so we read earlier a million years ago, In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And when God declares one to be justified, that declaration never changes, though that one changes from time to time. Let's be honest, we Christians have our ups and downs. We have our desert experiences, we have our moods and all the rest. We have our spiritual fluctuations. Let's just, let's just be honest. That's the way we are. But once God makes a declaration that we are justified, it stands. He's the same. He's immutable. He doesn't change. His word doesn't change. It's a constant in spite of the fact that we vacillate from time to time. God is the one who justifies. And then it says in verse 34, who therefore is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, so will Christ, you're a Christian, think, do you worry about this? Will Christ ever condemn us? Will Christ ever 
condemn you? The answer is no. Why not? Because the verse says, he is the very one who died for us. If he is for us, how can he at the same time be against us? It's not possible. Who is the one who condemns? Is it Christ Jesus? No, 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 no. He is the one who died. He not only did that, he also was raised. That's what he did. And he's at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is. And he intercedes for us. That's what he's now doing. How could it possibly be that that crucified, risen Savior, elevated to the right hand of the Father, whose mission now is to intercede for us, how could it be that he would be the one who would ever bring a word of condemnation against those for whom he has died? It's simply inconceivable. And so Paul is making the best attempt he possibly could to prove to us as Christians that God cannot and God will not ever fail us. But the question is, what about when we fail God? Don't our failings cause a separation between us and Almighty God? Well, let's just see in the next collection of verses. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. By the way, that's autobiographical, I think. Those are all things that Paul himself experienced. Everyone, think about it. Will all these, any of these things, says Paul, will any of these things separate us from the love of... You know what he's doing? He's making a cosmic search. <laughs> he's searching for all the things contained in the cosmos... He's looking for one thing that has the possibility of driving a wedge between us and God. He's looking to things in space, in time. He's looking to things in every dimension. He's looking to things in the past, in the present, in the future. You'll see. He's leaving absolutely nothing out. He's looking for something that someone might hold up and say, yep, this can separate us from the love of God. So he's giving what he believes I think you agree, is an exhaustive list of all the possibilities, things that could drive a wedge between humans in a relationship, things which do. Maybe you identified some of these things, but things which can never drive a wedge between us and Almighty God. So he goes on to drive home the point, verse 36. He says, just as it is written, and here he refers to the Old Testament. It's Psalm 44, verse 22. It says what is recorded there. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what does that have to do with Paul's point? Here's the point. <clears throat> Paul is saying there will be, there always have been natural and supernatural attempts to convince believers that he or she is in fact separated from the love of God. Some of those things are opposition, persecution, even being put to death. Paul is saying it's not only not possible even for those things to separate us from the love of God, it's wrong for us to think that those things are evidence of a separation from the love of God. Paul is saying in every age, Christians have been persecuted. Followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been persecuted. Believers, uh, those who are devoted to the one true God, have always been persecuted, even to the point of being put to death. Can those things provide <coughs> evidence 
that we are separated from the love of God? The answer is no. So I want to ask you to join me in praying. I was reading Psalm 44, 22, this verse, thinking about this oft-recurring truth that believers in all ages have been persecuted, even being put to death. And I couldn't help but thinking about what's happening to Christians, even as we sit here comfortably tonight in many places, not the least of which is Iraq. So you've heard now of ISIS. Isn't that crazy that that uh, acronym is on everyone's lips? Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS. You might have heard it, them referred to as ISIL. What does that mean? Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, El Levant, L-E-V-A-N-T. It's French, it's Latin, who knows? It's a reference to the real estate in that part. Donnie, thank you so much, brother. Man, look at that Donnie. He'll do anything to get people to clap for him. <laughs> Thanks, I'll drink this later. <clears throat> so uh, that's the Levant. Uh, Syria, you know, areas in the Middle East are called the Levant. So either ISIS or ISIL. By the way, they now have changed their name simply to the Islamic State. So if you hear that, it's referring to the same group. ISIS, ISIL, now the Islamic State. <clears throat> Why Iraq and Syria? Because they recognize no borders. Uh, their intent is to usher in the next caliphate. A caliph, caliph, is a, a, uh, the, the next replacement for Mohammed. Um, that's what the word sort of means, re replacement. The next person ushered in on the scene who will lead Islam in world domination. And the Islamic State believes that the coming of that one, the next caliph, um, requires a precursor, and that is worldwide cataclysm. So he does not return during a time of peace and tranquility. <clears throat> he returns when there is upheaval. This explains why groups like the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, <clears throat> Hamas, <clears throat> are not being deterred by sanctions. I mean, Iran is not being deterred in their nuclear ambitions by some flimsy economic sanctions pronounced upon them by the United States. They are sticking their thumb. In, in our eyes. Why? Are, they, are these groups con comprised of unintelligent members? Absolutely not. Uh, intellect, IQ is not in question here. They actually believe the caliph has to come on the heels of worldwide cataclysm. They want Israel in a war, and they want the United States in a war. They want World War next. Because then the caliph will come. It's, it's, it's sort of their messiah. <clears throat> to usher in the next Islamic world domination. The greatest world domination uh, ever. Uh, th that's why these groups are doing what, what they're doing. So um, the Islamic State, ISIS, uh, gives options to non-Muslims. Primarily now in northern Iraq. <clears throat> that would be Christians um, and others, non-Muslims. Non 
And the options are these. Uh, submit to Allah and the chief prophet Muhammad. And, and that's what Islam means, by the way. It's an Arabic word, and it means to submit or to yield. So that's an option. You yield to Muhammad, you yield to Allah. <clears throat> and then you're okay. You live. Uh, the second option is to live, but be subjugated by Islam. To be enslaved. Uh, the third option is to have your heads cut off. Does that sound a little dramatic? Might have been a few years ago. But we just saw a recent manifestation of it graphically before our eyes on every major news station. Unbelievable. By the way, this is a very politically incorrect statement to make, but I think it's correct. The logical uh, outgrowth of the Quran is what we're seeing today. The logical outgrowth of the Bible is Christians sacrificially offering the gospel to those who will, who will give them a hearing. The, the outgrowth of applying the Bible is not a sword or a gun. <clears throat> the outgrowth of the Quran are those things. So when you use the phrase radical Islam, to me it's a redundancy. If you're a good Muslim, if you practice the Quran, you're going to join groups like ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram. By the way, they don't get along. Did you know that? They hate Israel, the mini-Satan, and they hate us, the great Satan. Did you know that? Some of us who are not inclined to support Israel these days ought to be careful because we're next. Uh, all those groups have a common enemy. We will cause them to be unified, but they hate each other. They absolutely hate each other. And, and anyway, the, the outgrowth of the teachings of Islam are, 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 what, are what you're seeing. Intifada, uprising against the infidels. Non-Muslims, Jews, Christians, anybody else. Those are called infidels, and they have to be dealt with. They have to be forcibly converted, forcibly subjugated, or simply murdered. And ISIS is quite successfully now on a recruitment campaign. Did you know this? <clears throat> the State Department uh, uh, estimates that even as we speak tonight, there are 100 Americans fighting for and with ISIS, the Islamic State, in Syria right now. Americans. Um, intelligence agencies, British and U.S., think they've identified the uh, person who decapitated the young journalist the other day. And they think he's a British national. British citizen who's gotten, they say, radicalized. Radicalized. There's like an allure to join these groups. There are ISIS flags, in some cases now being uh, proudly displayed in Gaza and in other places in Israel. And I think the U.S. will be next. And Christians are literally being beheaded, and children uh, are being sliced in two. Right now, tonight, 
And we better pray. Because Christians are being slaughtered. And non-Christian Muslims are being slaughtered. Other Muslim-dominated nations think ISIS is a great threat to Islam, like Saudi Arabia. So why doesn't Saudi Arabia intervene and do something about it? So even the so-called moderate Islamic states are doing nothing. Nothing. So we're coming now to be obligated, uh, perhaps, to intervene in Syria. We've sent a few flights on surveillance missions, perhaps as a precursor for surgical bombing of ISIS, even in Syria. I don't know this. I don't know this. We're in trouble. I don't know if you knew this. <clears throat> we are really, really in trouble. It's a world running the experiment of life without God. How are we doing? Really bad on all fronts. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We're going to use our weaponry, the weaponry available only to believers, and that is to intercede. Come before the throne of grace and pray to Almighty God, because just as it said in this verse, just as Paul says, quoting from Psalm 44, 22, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's happening to our brothers and sisters right now in many parts of the world. So I would like to ask you, no fanfare, nothing like that. If you could just take some time privately where you are, bow your heads, pray, pray for a few things that are, the leadership of our country would be wise about what to do, that God would intervene and protect these people who are being slaughtered. It's genocide of Kurds and other ethnicities in northern Iraq, even as we speak. Pray for divine intervention. Pray for protection, for provision. Pray that the gospel would go forth, not only to the victims, but the perpetrators. The best approach to members of the Islamic State is the gospel. Converted Christians, generally speaking, don't cut off other people's heads. There's something about having the head or mind of Christ implanted in you that causes you to be minded differently towards those who are different than you. You don't want to kill them. You want to see them redeemed. Pray for the salvation, therefore, of members of all the groups I just mentioned. Pray that God would be glorified and that the gospel would go forth. Pray that Christian people, full-time missionaries and others, would be empowered, protected, shown favor, and be fruitful. There are missionaries in these very, very strenuous, threatening places, even as we speak. Pray other things that come to your mind. Take a few moments, if you don't mind, and then after a few moments, I'll just say, amen. 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 <clears throat> Thank you for doing that. Please continue. I like to turn the news reports into my prayer list. I don't know what to pray first. It's such a confusing day. So I kind of let the headlines be my prayer list. Otherwise, they just get you really upset, don't they? Get you really depressed. So instead, I use it as an opportunity to pray. When you're reading about what's going on, put it, put it on your prayer list. Make it a opportunity for you to pray. Paul's point, 
um, even though a Christian's head may be separated from his body, that Christian will never be separated from the love of God. See, that's the point he's making. Never, never, never. And the Bible says don't fear those who can kill only the body but cannot kill the soul. You see? <clears throat> Nothing can separate us from the love of God. In fact, Paul says in verse 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. The literal Greek essentially says we become super conquerors. That's what it says. In all these things, we not only are just hanging in there, we not only do not finish the race. Oh, no, no, no. In all these things, we become super conquerors. How? In our own strength? Oh, no, 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 no. Through him who loved us. What do you mean conquer? Christians are dying. No, no. It's not talking about this life. It's talking about eternal life. It's talking about the ultimate victory. It's talking about being joined to a glorified body. It's talking about entrance into a place where, where death is absent. There is no sin. There is no darkness. There's no mourning. There's no more crying. There are no more tears. Nothing can separate us from that. Nothing can interfere with that. Our lives are, can be affected by evil and evildoers here. They are. That's the way it is. But, but none of the, in all these things, we're super conquerors. Because in the end, the Lord Jesus is going to say, welcome home, welcome home. You think you made it by the skin of your teeth. Are you kidding me? I had you in the palm of my hand from before time. You are my elect. You caught up with me. I saw you coming from before time. You're mine. <coughs> I can bring mine home. <coughs> and then Paul says, <coughs> verse 38, I'm convinced that neither death, see it? <coughs> you know what happens when you die if you're a Christian? Yeah. The absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So he said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life. What do you mean life? Think about all the stuff contained in life. You know what's in life? Cancer. Sickness. Unemployment. <clears throat> Divorce. Kids on the run from God. Addictions, <clears throat> abuse, depression, anxiety. You have any of that stuff? That's rough stuff. None of the things contained in life, <clears throat> none of these things, nothing in death, nothing in life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing today, nothing tomorrow, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, just in case Paul left something out. He gives us this statement, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I got to get a hold of that, or I'm not emotionally going to make it, neither are you. I'm too unsettled. I, I'm too unstable. I'm too upset. I'm too disturbed by the day in which we live. So are you. I'm stressed out. I'm bothered. Life is just, it's not supposed to be this way. I don't want it this way for my kids. I don't want it this way for my grandkids. I don't like what's going on. I've got to wrap myself around what I just read. I've got to find a constant in a time of unsettledness and change. I've got, I, I got to get this in me. So do you. 
I got to get this. Yeah, but Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Furthermore, it tells me his love is not intermittent, transient, temporary. Paul gave me the exhaustive list. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is housed in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm in Christ Jesus by faith. Therefore, I have an inseparable love connection from his father to, to me. Everything, things change. You know, people are saying, we're going to Israel September 8th. People say, you're crazy, you're going to Israel? I say, what are you talking about? I didn't say Chicago, I said Israel. <laughs> I mean, folks, can I tell you something? You show me a safe place. Show me a safe place where you're guaranteed safe passage. Show me. You kidding me? It doesn't exist anymore. I don't like that. Nobody likes that. But I have this constant. If you're going to die in Chicago, but you're a Christian, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If you go to Israel and die, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If you go to a movie theater and some maniac starts shooting, nothing's going to separate you from the... You got it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You know what I love about this? It's a promise with no conditions attached. Think about it. God is not saying, if you do this, I will do something else. No, no, no. This is simply a declaration. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible we're supposed to do. This is just something we're supposed to get. This is not requiring anything of us except that we hang on to this. This is not asking us to do anything. This is just asking us to be convinced and persuaded. Don't you get it? Nothing can, you can be separated from your money, from your health, from your kids, from your family, from your job. Yeah, yeah, but nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in, which is in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? Blessed assurance. Jesus is now mine. You know what that is? It's a foretaste of glory divine. You know what I am? I'm an heir of salvation. I'm a purchase of God. How did that come about? Well, I've been born of his spirit. I've been washed in his blood. That's my story. That's my song. Gives me a cause to praise my Savior all the day long. Would you stand with me? We need to sing that together. Listen, we got to go with a song in our mouth, right? Even in this day. Let's go with blessed assurance. What if you don't have it? While everyone else leaves, you don't. Come meet with us in the Connection Center. It's right behind us. People there will speak to you about life, the giver of life, your life. They'll pray with you about whatever ever hurts, whatever's on your mind. They'll help you connect with the God who will never let you go. Connection Center. If you don't have blessed assurance, meet with us in there.